The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In this episode, we're continuing our podcast series, counting down the top five of history's greatest mysteries, which you voted for in our online poll. We've now reached the top three, And in third place is What Happened to Jesus' Body, which was nominated by the popular historian and author Tom Holland. I caught up with Tom to discuss why this has been such an enduring mystery. So, Tom, in our 20 Greatest Mysteries poll, you nominated What Happened to Jesus' Body, which has come third in the poll. Are you surprised that it made the top three or would you have expected it to come even higher? (laughs) 
Well, on one level, I'm quite surprised because I, I think it's not a kind of it's it's not on the obvious list of of mysteries. Um, having said that, in a way, I think it's probably the most historically influential of all mysteries. So, so, in, so in another sense, I think it should absolutely be number one. Now, one thing that some of our listeners might be thinking, and in fact, we have actually had a couple of letters about this, is does this actually count as history? Can a biblical event be included with other historical events in this way? I I don't see why not. I mean, there are um, primary sources that uh, touch on it. We have um, documents written within um, the lifetime of those who would have, who claim to have experienced or witnessed the event. So I think that, um, you know, compared say to the mystery of what Stonehenge was it's uh, it's it's a properly historical mystery so there are historical sources beyond the bible then for the events that happened well you say beyond the bible i mean our our, our primary source our earliest source is uh, the the letters of paul which are, are written a couple of decades perhaps um after the events that they describe and what's interesting about those letters is that um Paul, although he's a very argumentative writer, at no point ever does he seem to argue, does he have to make the case that um, that Jesus' body rose from the dead and, and, and vanished from the tomb. This seems to be taken completely for granted. And so from that, we, I think, can deduce the fact that the various communities of uh, Christians that Paul is writing to were taking this for granted. And if they were taking it for granted two decades after the event, then they must, you know, the, the story must have spread before Paul was writing. So I think that on that sense, we can absolutely accept, I think, as a historical fact, that, that whatever actually happened to the body people thought that Jesus's body had indeed gone from the tomb. And the fact that um, Paul's letters are in the Bible is neither one way or the other. They are, you know, texts within the Bible are legitimate sources. But there, but there are people out there, certainly there are historians who who have challenged the idea of a Bible being a historical source. Why do you think that is? Which depends what you mean by the Bible. I mean, the Bible is an absolute, it's, it's, it's an enormous patchwork of various materials. So you've got Genesis describing the creation of the world. That's clearly not historical. That's, that, that, that's a mythic text. You have other texts, the Exodus narrative, for instance, which is hugely contested personally. I, I don't think that, that that's historical at all. I also think it's mythical, but you will get people who will argue the toss over that. And then you have letters like, you know, Paul's letters in the New Testament, which are simply sources that that say what Paul was thinking. And Paul, we can situate him within a, a, a very detailed historical context and everything that he's writing serves as, you know, a primary source. Now, we're talking here because this is one of the great mysteries of history, but is there anything we can say with anything approaching certainty about Jesus's death and possible resurrection? I think we can be as certain as we can be certain about anything in ancient history that Jesus um, suffered death by crucifixion. And uh, extrapolating further from that, we can assume that he died because he was put to death by the Romans. Um, Beyond that, we start to wade into uh, all kinds of bogs. uh, and, And, you know, this is kind of typical of ancient history. We simply don't have the, 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 the terra firma that, that we tend to have for more recent periods of history. But of course, the, the question of what happens to the body of Jesus is further complicated by the fact that for millions, indeed billions of people, 
the issue of what happened is a matter of faith. And so therefore the tension between history and faith is profounder perhaps than, than, that, that, than on almost any other topic that one could think of in the field of history. And what is the mainstream, if that's the right word, Christian belief about what did happen to Jesus after his death? Christian teaching is that, um, that Jesus dies, he is buried, and he rises again on the third day, and he rises to uh, eternal life. Uh, he appears to his disciples. Um, he is with them for 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So you can see there that uh, you have a, a basic historical fact. Uh, a man in a Roman province suffers death at the hands of uh, the Roman administration. And then you end up with um, spectacular prophecies of what will happen at the end of days. And it's the challenge of negotiating <laughs> the, those kind of extremes that, 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 that complicates the whole issue of what actually happened to the body. And are there any historical precedents for this idea of resurrection? Well, you, ha you, have, um, you have a very obvious one that um, I think is uh, shadowing everything that Paul writes. And indeed, when Paul writes that um, Jesus is the son of God who has risen from the dead and ascended to his father, it would have been read by many, many people across the span of the Roman Empire as a kind of blasphemy. And the blasphemy is against Caesar Augustus, who, who, who's, who's one of whose names was Divi Filius, son of a god. And the god was the deified Julius Caesar, who had adopted uh, Augustus. Augustus himself, when he dies, is said to have risen up into the heavens and to be sat at the right hand of his heavenly father. Uh, he is uh, a, a god who was also a man who had brought peace to the world. And certainly in uh, the Greek half of the Roman Empire, the, the, the peace that Augustus had brought to a war-ravaged world is specifically called euangelion, good news, uh, from which we get the, uh, the word evangelist. This is, you know, the good news is the gospel. So when Paul is preaching his euangelion, his good news about a, a man who has risen from the dead and, 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 and is to be regarded as divine, the echo of the cult of Caesar is very, very palpable and I think very, very deliberate. Now, beyond the, the main Christian belief of what happened to Jesus' body, what other theories have been put forward? Well, we know right from the beginning, because it's there in, in the Gospels, that um, people claim that the, the disciples removed the body, um, uh, perhaps that the Sanhedrin, the, the kind of assembly of Jewish elders, that they had removed it. Um, there's even a, a wonderful theory that the church father Tertullian quotes, um, who, who says that people, people claim that the gardener uh, had removed the body because he was worried that crowds would come and trample on his lettuces, which I think is, is a fantastic theory. Um, when, you, uh, when you go beyond that, the idea that, that, that people came to the tomb and physically removed the body for whatever reason, then you start to uh, stray into the dimension of, of theology again, because... Um, 
there were Gnostic writers, um, Christians who, who for, for theological reasons, didn't want to countenance the idea that um, Jesus had been mortal, so that he'd been made of flesh and blood, and therefore argued that the, 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 the body on the cross was not properly corporeal, or that if it was, then Jesus was not, you know, at the moment he got nailed to the cross or died, the spirit of Jesus rose and left. So in a sense, the body is no longer Christ's. You have um, a particular refinement of this in a gospel by um, a writer called Basilides, writing at the end of the second century, who, um, who says that Jesus is taking the cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And he meets with Simon of Cyrene, who is a figure in the gospel, who, who, who shoulders the cross when Jesus stumbles to try and, and, and give him a, a moment of rest. According to Basilides, um, Jesus swaps places with Simon of Cyrene. So it's poor old Simon who, <laughs> who ends up being nailed to the cross. Uh, and according to, um, to Basilides, um, uh, the real Jesus watches this happen and, and, and we're told laughs. So doesn't give a particularly pleasant spin on, on, on Jesus. This version, um, goes underground. It, 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 it's not canonical. It doesn't end up in the canon of, 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 of uh, uh, orthodox scripture, but it seems to have, um, been perpetuated and it reappears in the Quran. So this is the, the story, the Quranic account again is that Jesus is, does not die on the cross. It's not Jesus who is nailed to the cross according to the Quran. This story again is further refined by the Ahmadis who are a subsect of, of Islam who claim that um, Jesus went to um, Kashmir and is buried in a tomb in, in Kashmir. So um, precisely because the fate of Jesus and the state of his body is so theologically, so historically significant, it's kind of served as a, a, a kind of Catherine wheel, spitting out all kinds of different theses, all kinds of different ideas. Um, and, and that is, you know, the ones that I've listed merely skim the surface. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Of, of, of alternative theses. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I, I have no doubt that the disciples thought that the body had had risen because i don't see otherwise why what becomes christianity would have had liftoff
what about the Romans and the Jewish people of, of the age who didn't necessarily buy into the Christian narrative? Did they offer any alternative theories? They, 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 they thought, I think, that the, the disciples had stolen it. And so what does a historian like yourself in this kind of scenario, what do you do when you're writing about Jesus? Can you entertain theories with a supernatural or miraculous component, or do you have to search for an alternative? I think that um, certainly since since the age of Gibbon, um, the idea that um, history might uh, have a place for supernatural explanations isn't one that is generally accepted. Um, the, the discipline of apologetics, which basically means making the case for the truth of a particular revelation is a, a highly distinguished one, uh, entirely legitimate, but it's not one that that really coincides with history. So I think that um, it's a mystery because there is no clear answer to it. And so I think that the most that a historian can properly do is to essentially say, yes, there is a mystery. I mean, in my own opinion, I, I have no doubt that um, that the disciples thought that the body had had risen. I, I, I believe the disciples thought that they had seen the risen Christ, um, because I don't see otherwise why what becomes Christianity would have had liftoff. I think that um, the mystery is is a fact of history, in my opinion. But what the explanation of that mystery is, I think, is unfathomable by historians because we can't possibly know the answer. So you yourself don't have a preferred theory as to what happened? I think that um, the narrative accounts of uh, what happens to Jesus's body are written a, a few decades after Paul's letters. So we may be kind of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after the event. Um and it's not as though the gospel writers are doing it as kind of journalists or um, historical investigators. They are trying to describe and explain what to them is the most transformative event in the whole of human history. And so the standards that they bring when they write the gospels have to be understood as such. And that effectively means, I think, that it is difficult to assume that what we read in the Gospels should necessarily be taken as a straight narrative account of, of what actually happened. I think that it's carrying all kinds of, of, of an enormous freight of, of, of theological, mythological, symbolic weight. So what I think, what do I think most probably happened? I think in some way, the experience of grief and loss was transmuted into a sense of hope. And I think that the disciples looked back at what Jesus had told them. And I think Jesus, the reason that the disciples think that he's risen from the dead, I, I imagine is because Jesus had told them that this is what would happen, but elliptically. So when they look back, they felt that they'd suddenly come to understand things that they hadn't understood. And that therefore they were able to interpret events in that particular way. But perhaps it didn't actually need literal visions of Christ. Perhaps they saw him in, his, in their hearts, in their minds, in their dreams. And, 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 and what actually happened to the body, I don't know. I mean, I don't know.
And so are there any more recent theories about what might have happened to Jesus? There absolutely are. Um, the, there's a kind of, the, I, I guess the kind of the famous one is the idea that um, Jesus might not actually have died on the cross, but kind of rose up, recovered, made it out of the tomb. And that was the theme of a, a famous short story by D.H. Lawrence. And it's one that's kind of inspired many, many stories and theses since. Um, there's another kind of idea that G- that Jesus never existed, that uh, the whole thing is is a myth, that it's a kind of riff on tales of death and regeneration that you find perhaps in um, in Egyptian myth or uh, Near Eastern myth. Um, and then my favourite one as a child, which I, I remember <laughs> reading with great excitement, is that the idea that he's an alien, and that the um, the angels uh, who who appear to uh, Mary Magdalene in shimmering white are aliens in spacesuits, and that after the forty days when Jesus ascends into heaven, he's being <laughs> teleported up into a flying saucer. So um, that's that's certainly a theory that probably historians. Uh, uh, I'm going to be entirely comfortable with. But if you're a small boy interested in flying saucers, it's a pretty good one. And actually what you were saying about, you know, there are people who who doubt authenticity of Jesus. Um, Is there enough evidence to say that we can be sure that Jesus certainly lived regardless of exactly what he did in his life? I think the, the the evidence that Jesus existed is overwhelming. I mean, there are almost no, in fact, I don't think there are any serious historians who who, who doubt that somebody called Jesus lived and uh, was crucified. Um, I, I think that um, the only reason that you would have for denying that is because you don't want to think that Jesus existed. So it's a kind of atheist equivalent of um, biblical literalism. It's it's putting the cart of what you want to believe ahead of the uh, the horse of the actual evidence. And I guess this is a bit of a long shot, but is there any kind of archaeological discovery or a a source that could turn up that would actually solve this mystery. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I suppose that if you found the, you know, the skeleton of a man with <laughs> with nails, <laughs> I am Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> kind of stamped on him, that would do it. But I don't think so. No, I mean, I no, because because I mean, aside from anything else. To actually have the body, that would have been the clearest way for those who wanted to suppress this growing movement to demonstrate that it had been false. And we have no accounts of that happening at all. So the prospects of finding anything comparable to that after 2000 years, I'd say are zero. And finally, this is a little bit off topic, but there's been a lot of discussion recently around depictions of Jesus in the West and whether it's appropriate that he's often shown as being a white man in Western art. Do you have any thoughts about that at all? I have absolutely no problem with that at all, because um, if you're a Christian, you think that uh, Christ came and died and rose from the dead for the sins of of everyone. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no man or woman. There is no slave or free. That's the kind of fundamental teaching of Christianity. All human beings are created equally in the image of God. And therefore, um, Jesus is to be understood as living in the society that you inhabit. So that's why uh in the roman period he's portrayed in roman dress in the byzantine period he's portrayed in byzantine dress in renaissance italy he's portrayed as living among renaissance italians and now today where the gospel has spread to south america or to africa or to uh, china so he will look south american 
or African or Chinese. Uh, that is a kind of theological fundamental. The requirement in a multicultural, multiracial society like Britain's now is that um, the representations of Jesus correspond to the ethnic makeup of the country, but that that will inevitably happen. Um, you know, artists from the different backgrounds of people who live now in Britain will represent him in a way that makes sense to them. And I think that that's absolutely right and proper. So your, I don't know if solution is the right word, but your view is that we should, really, this is something that will change through time rather than any need to go back and amend the representations we have from the past. I think it would it would kind of verge on the heretical to say that that um, Jesus didn't look like uh, an Italian or didn't look like a, 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 a someone from Flanders or or whatever because Jesus, if you if you believe that he is he he is the risen Lord, he 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 is alive wherever there are Christians. So it's entirely legitimate for people from whatever period, um, whatever background whatever geographical location, to portray him as living among them. That was Tom Holland. Tom explored the history of Christianity in his most recent book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, which was published in 2019 by Little Brown. And he's also the editor of an upcoming volume entitled Revolutionary, Who Was Jesus? Why Does He Still Matter? which is due to be published by SPCK next month. And you can read Tom's original nomination, as well as all 19 others, on our website at historyextra.com forward slash greatest dash mystery. And that's all for today. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll return tomorrow when you'll discover what came second in our poll of history's greatest mysteries. (laughs) 